0: COVID is a great example of how our educational system is going to affect us in the long term, regardless if you're in Fox Chapel or not. What's going on downstream is affecting upstream.
1: Welcome to the Among Neighbors podcast, a joint project with Point Park University's Center for Media Innovation and YWCA Greater Pittsburgh. Hello, and welcome to Among Neighbors, a podcast about race, power, and privilege. I'm Andy Conti, director of the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University in downtown Pittsburgh. And today we're talking about an issue that affects so many of us across the region, it's education and how the coronavirus pandemic has really exposed the inequities in this process. I'm joined by my co-host, Barbara.
2: Hi, this is Barbara Johnson. I am the Director of Race and Gender Equity at YWCA Greater Pittsburgh, and I'm very excited to be here today to be talking about the intersection of racism and the educational school system here in Pittsburgh.
1: When this topic has special resonance for you, right? When we we brought it up, this is something you wanted to talk about from the beginning. Why was that?
2: Yeah, um, I think that uh, the people seem to think that there's all of a sudden all these new inequities that are rising up when in fact, many of most of these inequities around race existed before COVID-19. And especially when we think about all of the intersections that a person who has children has to deal with in terms of um, being at home with their children and working, how many children are at home, what are the age ranges of the children in terms of what um, level of schooling they need. Do they have access to food? If they're not working, um, if they are working, who's educating their kids? And then just even as a parent, there's an assumption made that parents can do what teachers get trained for four to eight years to do. And so parents are not natural educators of the academic subjects that come in a school system. So I think that the layers of that um, and then access to um, technology is another piece. And maybe you have technology, but then you don't have um, Wi-Fi. So I think that the layers around all of that that parents are experiencing that also Amber spoke very um, well about in her piece are, were there. So they were already there. And so now more people are noticing them.
1: Yeah, I think this is a great, a great point. And I'm, I'm eager to talk about the technology piece in particular. Um, I just heard a, a story today about Pittsburgh Public Schools and how they've given out technology to all of the, you know, a thousand students, I think it was, but then they were afraid to deploy all of the technology because, it, you know, the cameras show people in their homes. And and so there are all these hurdles and questions that have to be addressed. Uh, we've done very quickly this spring, but we're going to have to do in much more detail as we think about education as we head into the, the fall of 2020. We're joined today by two experts on this issue, and, you know, Barbara, you always talk about how people are experts on their own perspective. And I can't think of a better example of this than Amber Thompson, who just wrote in public source a first person story about what it's like to be a mother of a child with special needs and trying to navigate this whole process. So Amber, welcome to uh, Among Neighbors.
0: Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Barbara.
2: Great to have you.
1: Yeah, we're excited to, to hear more about your story. But before we get to that, I wanted to introduce our other guests and that is uh, Dr. Lori Delale. O'Connor, Assistant Professor of Education at the University of Pittsburgh's Center for Urban Education. And Lori, I'm pretty sure I butchered your last name there, too. Um, (laughs) Can
3: you... That's totally okay, Andy. It's DeLaylee O'Connor. DeLaylee really O'Connor.
1: Close. You are really close. So close, yeah, but uh, close isn't good enough, so I'm glad you, you clarified <laughs> that. And your research focuses particularly on this issue that we're talking about today, this whole issue of fostering equity and justice among young people in urbanized education systems. So eager to get your perspective as well. But let's start out with Amber. Um, Amber, can you talk a little bit about your, your first-person story and what you were trying to get across to people?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, there was another first person essay that was written about um, this being apocalypse for PPS, and um the person acknowledged the inequities in the system and asked that we give grace and patience to the district. And um why I felt compelled to write was because I am a black parent. Um I was a single parent, I am no longer, but I have multiple resources. And I'm struggling Mm. to provide for my own daughter with special needs. And to give more background of me, I do have a master's degree in organization development. So I facilitate and train people um, about uh, how to engage and learn about people as a profession. And I'm struggling. And I've co-created data management tools with my daughter's IEP team. And I'm struggling. And when people think about disabilities and special education, they only think about a teacher and maybe like other, like the arts teacher, music teacher, but it literally is a team of maybe 10 to 15 people who all have master's degrees or PhDs. And they have to get continual education during the school year, not three years from now, not two years from now. They're constantly traveling to train. And whenever you have those type of educative um, people working with you, um, you try to retain as much information um, in these meetings, but it's nearly impossible. And then when the district doesn't even give you the tools to attempt it, um, you're just left with nothing at this point. And um, that's kind of like where, where I was coming from in writing about this, was I felt like a lot of people... Um, who have these issues, their voices aren't being heard. And the people who have the resources, their voices
1: are being heard. Barbara, what do you think about that? And what do you yeah. think about Amber's
2: I think, essay? I think that, that you really nailed it for sure, Amber, um, especially related to the the ability to have the resources and still um, you know, not be able to do what you're being tasked to do. I mean, I have a couple of younger friends who have children at home and one of them just said to me, you know, today I just decided that like they're, they're both of them are going to win. I I just can't like, I'm going to work. They can run around, they can break things. They can do whatever they want in the house. Cause I just, it's so stressful to be working at home and trying to teach two children at different age groups even when you have the professional capacity to, to do the same kind of thing at work, it doesn't mean that you can do it all in one room, um, you know, with multiple people moving around that are, you know, have different needs. And you're also, you know, you're the chef, you're the caregiver, you're, the, you're everything. So, in addition to the job you have and, and trying to teach, you have everything else that goes along with being parent. And as a parent, I totally understand that. So yeah, I think um, I really appreciate the fact that you added that you're that you have the the um experience to do that kind of work. And even with that, it's a struggle. And so that pretty much puts the layer on all the other people who are struggling who may not have the capacity for understanding the educational system like you do. Thank you, Barbara.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, Lori, well let's bring you in, Lori. I mean, are you are you surprised by anything that you saw in um, Amber's essay or you know the the feelings that she's articulating about the the inequities she's experiencing in the education system?
3: No, I was not surprised at all, and I was, um, you know, I, I mentioned whenever we first got on um, to Amber that I was excited to read um, her piece and excited by how deliberately she named race, right? That that was not just, oh, and in addition, this matters, that it, that that was very much centered, right? And, and nothing, I think, surprised me because it's what we've been hearing, certainly since um, everything has been going on with the pandemic, but it's, you know my own research is really focused i mean i'm i'm a mother as well but is really focused on caregivers right mm-hmm. and it's what we've been hearing prior to this, right? It's when I'm teaching, um, you know, the students that I have the privilege of working with at Pitt, it's what we teach them. I mean, it's part of what our school system, not education, right? And I want to keep those distinct, right? Because we educate our kids. I educate my children at home, but school systems do a different thing, right? And it's part of what public education, public school systems were founded on, right, in particular for black and brown families, is that marginalization, is that separation, Um, and that, so it didn't surprise me, I just thought she wrote it beautifully, tied it both to her experience, but also to her knowledge base, right, so that it was clear, like, hey, don't think this is new, right, what's new is that I think more people are seeing it, Um, you know, we've, I've had the opportunity to listen to some really great, um, you know, podcasts like this one, different webinars, but that have been focused. And one of them I love is focused on, um, you know, under the blacklight, because it's saying this stuff's always been here, right? It's just now, folks, it's coming to the fore for many more people. And so it's getting a different voice as a result of that. But no, I, I thought Amber laid it out beautifully, and I don't think a single word in there surprised me.
1: Lori, could you? I wonder if you, could you talk about what makes it a racial issue? Because I think a lot of white people sure. would look at it and say, "Well, this is a social economic issue that poor white people also face inequities." And so, right. can you explain and, that?
3: And yeah. I never want to say that other folks do not face inequities. That's that's not true. But I, and I I I would push and and I wonder, you know, what Amber would say about this, and Barbara and Andy, what you think? But to me, it's it's not a race issue. It's a racism issue. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not because a family is black, a family is brown, you know, that they are experiencing this. It is because, you know, inter- the intersections between education and healthcare and housing and employment are huge. Right. I mean, so the education system just bears the brunt of all of those other in- inequities. And historically, we see the intersection right where you live in, in particular in a segregated city like Pittsburgh. Yep. determines what you have access to in terms of mm-hmm. high quality food. Can you get that food delivered so you don't have to leave your house, right? And mm-hmm. that's one additional thing. Can you get access to, you know, now we're in a, again, a health moment, uh, access to testing. Do people believe you when you're ill? Do you know where do you have access to public transportation? All of those things then intersect with education. So when when I'm teaching, that's where we start, right? We don't start with okay schools. We start with schools being this sort of microcosm of a broader society filled with racial inequities, and and again, and not to not even to belabor this point, but my my background's in sociology, right? And so we care a lot about that in the intersections of history, but. Our education systems now have been repurposed with goals that weren't their initial goals, right? Part of their initial goals was to make a more common set of folks to erase in both the real spelling of the word and the raced spelling of the word, um, and to deculturize young people, right? To take them away from their families if their families were black and brown and immigrants um, who weren't considered white, right? Or their proximity to whiteness was different uh, to make them more like to standardize, right? And so it's not surprising to me that systems that were designed to do that continue to do it even though we try to make them do something else.
2: Yeah, that's really, um, I, I think it's really interesting to, to, to constantly remind ourselves of the fact that racism is a, a is a part of our history and that the trajectory continues, it just looks different um, in different situations. And so the, um, you know, the oppression shows up in different ways and, uh, but it's always been there. It's been there since the beginning of um, slavery. So hundreds and hundreds of years where it's just changed its look.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and with, in regards to Pittsburgh public, we have so much data. That ties the systemic discrimination and the systemic racism back to schools, back to their programming, back to their um, their special programming, not only for students with disability, but gifted students. Absolutely. Um, So we need to really um, sit down and understand how each of these systems function from the school board out to the community and the decisions they're making that are affecting our neighborhoods. We need to understand our administration and, you know, how their hierarchical top-down process probably does not um, allow these schools to um, function for their neighborhoods, not just for PPS, but specifically for their neighborhoods. And then what kind of training and what kind of um, resources are we giving our students and our teachers to actually address the needs and the issues that they want? Um, I love the community school model, but we're not really uh, engaging our community to be part of this model. Absolutely. And I think that's one thing that you
3: did so well, Amber, in that piece was you you had the present moment, but then you went back and said, you know, about disciplinary disparities, right, in particular for our young Black girls in the, you know, in the city. Like tying it back to this just didn't start. This, this isn't new. Yes. Right. This is just a different manifestation. And I, I just thought you did that so, so well but to say like, yep, this is just another example or another moment where we're seeing, where we're seeing these disparities.
2: Yeah, thank you. I'm curious, are there uh, models out there that are doing it well? Like, I was really, when I read your article, Amber, it just was, and I have been hearing this from people, but it was mind boggling to me. My kids are older, but that the entire Pittsburgh public school system could just be so off. Like, (laughs) It was just, it's just, and I, my boss has kids in the public school system. Some of my colleagues have kids in the public school system. Hands down, they're all saying the same thing. Like they just like disappeared into, into cyberspace and nobody knows anything. And I was like, wow. So I'm just curious, like, are you aware of any um, school systems or cities or anybody who's doing it right and getting it right?
0: I think Lori brought up a good point that she educates her children at home. Um, There are a lot of um, Black led homeschooling movements, unschooling and unlearning, where they're um, decolonizing the education system and just really pointing out the pieces of those structures or just in general what we need to be successful as people Mm -hmm. versus just colonizing or standardizing our thoughts and. Um, you know, just creating robots to check in and check out at work. That's, you know, and I think um, another type of schooling system that is also working for children, just black led schools, where um, they're founded by black leaders, they're managed by black leaders, their teachers are black um, or people of color. And Um, A lot of schools where they focus on ingraining the community with the education um, are very successful. Uh, I think LeBron James School is, what, year one now? All of those children are successful. There's a school in Ohio. There's a whole huge community school just a couple hours from here, a whole system where they took millions of dollars and built a school structure just for community schools and ha- being able to have the doctors at the school, being able to have the community and social services in the school. So it was designed for this, just in Ohio. Um there in Pittsburgh? I thought we had one in Highland Park. Um, in Highland? A community school in Highland Park? It was a black-led school. Oh, 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 yes, yes. Still um, there? Uh, it is... It's not in Highland Park anymore. I believe it moved oh. to Larmer or Lincoln. Oh, okay. Um, they've moved to a different building, but that that and that is a great school too because they are they don't have a suspension policy. They do try to retain children. Um, some private schools have a hard time retaining children with behaviors
2: That's and right. disabilities. You that in your article, which is yeah. interesting, right? Yeah. So Natural choices
0: yeah so it's I feel like that school's a good example of being able to um still take children who have quote unquote behavior issues and the um general education in the public schools um but there's still limitations to that program too so there there are people doing it and there's large school districts doing it just none in um not in our inner cities in Pennsylvania. One of the things, though, that I heard Amber say,
3: if it's okay that I um, build on that, was you said that are working for children and families, as Mm -hmm. opposed to a lot of the, and and you brought this up too, I think, at the end of your piece, as opposed to the metrics that are usually used for school success, right? So testing, and you you mentioned this idea of the sort of colonized model of education, right? And so I wouldn't say it's, you know, a good thing, right, because of all the reasons you talked about, like, you know, parents are at home, many parents actually can't be at home, they're essential workers, you know, there's this challenge, but for many students, particularly black and brown students, not being in a space, you know, in a classroom where they're not learning about themselves, their community is not valued, their family is not integrated, like, that shift away is a re- can be a good thing, right? Can be a very positive thing for the for the folks who are able to engage that. It's mm-hmm. just that even thinking about engaging that, right? It's I mean, mm-hmm. I think the points Barbara made at the beginning, you know, and that you also made, Amber, about teachers being trained and and developing curricula and all of that stuff, and that's really hard, right? I was a high school teacher before I did anything else, and I, you know, even having that background, my two kids at home, I'm like. I can't develop a curriculum and for two different, you know, for a seventh grader and a first grader and also, right, continue with my own job and also try to feed you all. And also, right. So it's it's all of that as well. Right. Yeah. But yeah. That it is, I think that the points that you make, even for districts that are that we're already struggling right and financially and in other places it's also how are they engaging their families and their communities mm-hmm. right like so if you're now expecting me to take on the the role as teacher i'd like some respect in the materials that you're sending i'd like some flexibility right what needs to be turned in what can be valued right so i'm we're doing a lot of storytelling in our house that's important. I know that's important. And so how do you count? How does that quote unquote count? Right. And how do you act? We often hear parents as partners or caregivers as partners. How how do you treat me like a partner? Not just tell me what works for you. School or school district, and I and I think to that point we're seeing also a lot of community organizations filling those gaps, right? Coming up with curricula, um, and even and very much in Pittsburgh, right? Or feeding families, or doing that, and and again, it's hey, why don't we do a better job of incorporating them in in to schooling regularly, not just when we we quote unquote need them. Right, So that, to me, I think, is these are organizations, whether they're churches, whether they're, you know, community um, um, community outreach centers, those things that, that families already attend and trust. And the kids kind of want to go to. Again, we have that other issue that lots of kids don't even want to go to school. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so I, that's where I'm seeing, I think, maybe some exciting possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. That, that is, how do we connect? And as we're all moving into summer and thinking about, oh, no, like what, oh, you know, there's There's no camp, right, and so what are these online opportunities again because lots of or distanced opportunities or even just materials, right, that are are coming out um, from, again, organizations, from artists, from folks who are thinking about education but maybe not thinking about, you know, we don't have testing this year. (laughs) I, for one, am pretty happy about that, Um, and so how can we take advantage of that? moment or how can we support families and Educators in taking advantage of that moment
1: Could you, so- I wonder for both um, you laurie and and amber uh, You know because one of the things we try to do on the show is is have that broader conversation too, to say, you know How does this affect the entire region? And I think it's easy for a lot of white people to say well I feel terrible about this and I you know, I, I feel awful that this is happening in my my broader community but you know, I live in particular outside of the city of Pittsburgh and, you know, it's easy for people to say, well, I live in a community that's almost all white and this doesn't really affect me. But as we try to talk about in here, these are the kinds of things that affect all of us because they they affect our entire community and they they really get to the core of what it means to be a, a member of society. And so could you talk about that from a perspective of... What it means to white families um, who may not see this inequity um, Who didn't see it before but maybe are noticing it now if they they saw amber's column um, What should they how should they look at that and then how should they react or the things that they could be doing to address this issue?
0: Um, it's a very interesting question um, Andy because I try not to talk over people when I engage in this conversation because the only language I have to talk about this is in regards to systems. And that is how we're all connected. And COVID is a great example of how we can all be affected by one decision that's not in our neighborhood. (laughs) And um, when we talk about flattening the curve, um, why black folks and brown people and indigenous people are being highly more affected is because their accessibility to resources to be able to not be exposed to the virus. But because we are exposed to the virus, we still have to engage and in, in be essential workers in our community where white folks think they're not being affected. <laughs> um, so COVID is a great example of how our educational system is going to affect us in the long term, regardless if you're in Fox Chapel or not. I just did an interview with a student in Fox Chapel where their um, history class is talking about um, the socioeconomic impacts um, on them in Fox Chapel from the city. So how are we, uh, what's going on downstream is affecting upstream. So um, the only way I can answer that is understanding the, um, the oppressive systems that affect all of us, regardless if you're in that system or not, um, the the trickle-downness of it does happen, and COVID is a great example.
2: And I would say, I would add to that, Amber, um, eventually, because I used to get this question a lot when I worked in higher education, um, eventually those people who are leaving grade schools and high schools have to leave their bubble community and go somewhere. And so they may uh, end up in a college and they may have a black or brown roommate that they're not used to. And so, If you've never given your child that opportunity, how are they prepared to navigate a college system where they're around people who don't look like their bubble community? And then if that's what you want for your young person to go to college, then the next level is to go work somewhere. And you can't create a bubble environment in your workplace either. So so I think that that also is another layer for everybody to think about how interconnected they are.
0: Yeah. And not yep. talk about it in the sense of fear, too, because right. white folks will not be the majority moving soon. So let's let's f- figure out to have this conversation where it's a positive to understand other people. hmm. Yep. Yeah, I think you yeah. both say it really well in terms, especially in at the point
3: that Amber made about systems. Right. This I don't think that we have had a moment where you can see this connection so starkly, right? I mean, it is just because we're seeing, you know, again, Black, Brown, Indigenous folks being way more highly impacted, but it's not, I mean, even from things to who is, you know, who are your essential workers? Who is in your space that you are now going to, you don't, you're not even friends. You, you are going to the grocery store. Yeah. You are, you know, yeah. all of those, all of those things. And we are, it is very much a, you know, you can't, you can't um, stop that from happening or you can't insulate yourself yeah. from it happening to you. And so that education, I, I mean, I'd like to say from the onset, you know, ideally people would care about this regardless, right. <laughs> but, right. but now it's impacting your daily life. It's impacting, you can't go on vacation now. Like there are all these different things, you know, you can't, you can go anywhere. Um, and so those elements, right. If we are not supporting each other, if we're not working to understand and dismantle, you know, those systems, then that ultimately now is, is coming back to you wherever you, you are in the system, right. You can't, exactly. you know, and I think that becomes a huge part of it. I also see again from, from, maybe an idealist perspective, there are all of these amazing opportunities, again, your home, um, to engage with artists online, to engage with educators online, to engage with where they're talking about this in ways that is accessible, you know, no matter what you know already, right? It's accessible to young kids and say, hey, let's, let's check this out huh, this isn't something that that we have maybe familiarity with, or this is something I want to know more about. Or, you know, from our perspective, my kids have a whole new social studies curriculum. I mentioned I taught high school. I taught high school social studies. And so I'm like, oh, no, I know what you're reading. Mm-mm. So they're reading, they, you know, my oldest read stamped, right? Ibram um, Kendi's um, text with Jason Reynolds. And again there are these hey can we see this as an opportunity um, mm-hmm. to not not just educate the way we had been but to say what are what are these spaces and then maybe come fall or whenever young people are back who knows right this might be a text to suggest right to your to your local school board to you know to your book club to the educators you work with
0: Lori, I'd like to ask, sorry, Conti, I'm just want <laughs> to get this out. Um, I'd like to ask if there's any way that we can even advocate as parents or in a community to say no more testing, because if we can get rid of it right now, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't, right. we didn't know it wasn't needed, right. but you no, proved your point. And I think that's a huge,
3: you know, and I think this is the other part where we're seeing, and again, you know, you, you mentioned the, the, Specifically, race connected, you know, disparities. But I think so many families are seeing, you know, education is literally now in our living room, right? Formalized education, or our kitchen, or wherever. Um, and I think lots of families are seeing how it's not working, um, you know, for their for their kids and again for various reasons and it's it's now front and center and so i think we already knew that testing challenged a lot of young people and even the kids who were doing well with it it's really in a lot of ways sort of dominating their learning right i know lots of teachers who don't like having to teach the way they have to teach connected to the test even in school districts that are faring very well on those tests right they'd rather be doing something else right and and i think that that to me, it becomes, how do we think about advocating, not just as, as parents or caregivers or communities, but also as, like, getting educators more on that side, right? And yeah. what, what does that, how does that matter? And I also think, again, the more we're online or even in these hybrid models, you're not going to be able to test. I mean, we're seeing, and I think we need to be lifting up, the failure of, you know, things like, again these are in the, among the most privileged, like AP tests went online. And I know some folks were like, oh, it went smoothly. And others who were like, that was a mess. I do not want my young, my my children doing that. And so then we start to see, well, hang on. If you, with your fast Wi-Fi and access to, you know, all the AP classes that exist are struggling with this, what does that mean for young kids who, you know, have been engaging on their phones um, rather than up? Uh, a, their own dedicated laptop in a quiet space like all of those things and so I think I, I you know in, in in Education when we think of critical race theory, we think of interest convergence And I think that's what we're seeing right here, right? It's an interest yeah. convergence that things happen when it's not just black brown indigenous folks, but when there's an interest for white in particular, middle and upper upper class parents, right? So we're seeing that in interest convergence. I think we've seen it before, right? Like I know New York State has experienced that opt out movement a lot, in a lot bigger way than we have. And you're seeing folks that are, you know, again that interest convergence. Why don't you want your child doing those tests? And so I, I'm to me, it's how do we push the momentum of that interest convergence?
1: That's such a. I think it's a, a great point. I hate to cut off the conversation. We need to Sorry. put a cap on it somewhere. And I, I think oh, that whole idea on. of interest interest <laughs> convergence is a great idea. And, I, and I, we might even, uh, Barbara, we might want to re- rethink the name of our show. I think uh, that's a good name, Interest Convergence. <laughs> I and like that, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> that really says it. So uh, thanks to both of our guests for joining us today. Uh, Amber Thompson wrote a first-person essay for Public Source about her experience as a mother of a child with special needs and navigating the public school system. So thank you, Amber, for being here today. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah. And Dr. Lori Delaley O'Connor teaches education at the University of Pittsburgh Center for Urban Education. And thank you so much for your work and for your insights today, Lori. Oh,
3: thank you, Andy. And thank you, Barbara. And I'm so glad I got to meet Amber as well. This is yes. a great, great conversation.
1: Yeah, it's nice when you can always bring people together. So that that's great. Uh, Barbara, what did you think about the discussion today? And and in terms of the the broader thing that we're always thinking about this issue of, of race, power and privilege and, you know, cutting across the racial lines in Pittsburgh and the broader southwestern
2: Pennsylvania community? Well, I think that this conversation definitely um, sealed how you opened when we talk about how everybody is an expert in their own life. And so when we think about education, um, as Lori put it, I think that it's very important that parents now, based on all that they've been through in the past, what, three months, should be seen by the school districts and the systems as partners. You're a partner in the education of my child. I am your partner. We need to do this together and we need to be together. People's real life stories are really, really important. And if you pay attention to the stories of the people and engage the people who, who are part of the system that you want to make work, it can get better. And I think that this was a perfect example of how you know parents who are home with their kids are the best teachers for their kids, maybe not so much in the systems that we've created, but we can put those together and make something good.
1: Among Neighbors, a podcast about race, power, and privilege is produced by Tyler Polk, and it is a joint project of YWCA of Greater Pittsburgh and the Center for Media Innovation at Point Park University. To hear other episodes, please visit pointpark.edu CMI, or search for Among Neighbors wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Among Neighbors Podcast. This podcast was produced by Tyler Polk. Audio versions of Among Neighbors is available on TuneIn, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Video version available on YouTube.